from 12 News, this is Newsmakers. Welcome to Newsmakers. I'm Ted Nisi. Tim White is off this week. I'm joined by my colleague, Target 12 investigative reporter, Steph Machado. Well, we're now less than three months away from Rhode Island voters going to the polls for the primary election to choose party nominees to head on to November. Lots of contested races for big seats that are open with incumbents leaving office due to term limits, including General Treasurer, where there's a Democratic primary featuring former Central Falls Mayor James Diosa and his opponent, our guest this week, in his first television interview as a candidate, former now Rhode Island Commerce Secretary Stephen Pryor. Stephen, thanks for joining us. I'm glad to be here with you, Ted and Steph. Good to have you. So uh, let's start with the basic question. 60 seconds or less. Why do you want to be Rhode Island's treasurer? You know, our economy is strong in Rhode Island right now. There are certainly small businesses and businesses of every scale that are still struggling and there are households that are still getting their footing. But our economy is strong. One of the key ratings of the state shows that we have the second strongest economic recovery in the whole United States. That's Moody's rating. And the top in the Northeast for our going back to normal after the COVID downturn. That is a great thing for Rhode Island. Typically, we have a laggard status where we are coming from behind. Massachusetts, by the way, on that ranking where we're number two is 42nd and New York is 50th. We really are emerging strong from the COVID downturn, but we can't rest on those laurels. We need public officials in the offices that matter who know how to manage the economy and know how to manage it through crisis. And that's what I think I offer in the office of Treasury. There's been a strong track record of recent treasurers who have put our financing system and our pension system on a good track. Now we have to keep our eye on that prize and I would be obsessed with ensuring that our finances are strong and that we keep growing our pension system for our valued retirees, our public servants who are now retired. But I think there is now a platform in that office because of the stability of our finances and our pension system that can be expanded to include economic growth as a goal. And one of the things that I would do with that office is I would make sure that we use it, we use the leverage of it, we use the tools of it, and we grow some new programs to make the economy even stronger. And we don't just count on this economic momentum that all of us have made sure happens. We offer more in the way of support for small businesses, and there are other steps that I can describe. All right, we're gonna talk more about your ideas today, but I do have to start with, I mentioned your opponent, uh, James Yost, who's been in the race for a while. Yes. Uh, they've targeted you from the start, and this week, uh, Diosa said, uh, actually our second half guest, Boston Globe reporter, Ed Fitzpatrick, had a story that Diosa said he's fired a, filed a Hatch Act complaint against you for the weeks where you were still Commerce Secretary but had announced you were running for Treasurer. Uh, you've been dismissive of that. For folks at home, the Hatch Act is a law that often comes up in campaigns about you know people associated with federal money and what they can do and can't do in politics. Um, what's your response to this allegation from your opponent? Anyone can make any accusation these days, and it, I find it very disappointing, but also it's revealing. Um, the other candidates' campaign is full of trickery and false claims. They also set up a false Twitter account, I'm told, that's trying to mimic my Twitter account. I mean, this is what the other campaign is up to, no substance that I've been able to pick up on so far. I think that shows that they know how formidable our, our campaign is. On the specific issue of the Hatch Act, come on, you, you know full, 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 uh, full well, there are many uh, state public officials who campaign while they're in public office, governors do, 
uh, secretaries of state do, treasurers do. That's a common practice. For appointed officials, the law is very clear, and I'm nowhere near in violation, uh, perfectly in the clear. You have to have a fully uh, federally funded salary. Uh, you have to have a federally funded salary to, to be uh, under that act. So it's totally the- false. Um, and what's upsetting is that I, I bet I bet folks know that and they're making the accusation anyway. And the reality is I've actually been extra cautious. I actually decided while I was in public office, I don't know if any of us have seen this before, I didn't raise any money from Rhode Island because I want to make sure that my influence didn't affect fundraising while I was still in office, which is overcautious. Even separate from the Hatch Act, though, people were still criticizing you for not resigning sooner once you decided to declare public office. Listen, as Commerce Secretary, you're negotiating with high-level people, out-of-state CEOs, uh, things like that. Why didn't you resign uh, sooner after declaring your candidacy? I actually heard both. I actually heard you should stay longer, and I heard that you should uh, leave sooner, and it sounded like my, uh, my opponent was very eager for me to get out on the campaign trail, and now here we are, and I'm excited to do it, and we're really energized. Um, but uh, the specific reason I extended beyond my self-imposed two weeks before departing, that was just something I said myself uh, to extend it a, a couple weeks longer, was to help with a couple of big projects. We were still getting small business grants out for uh, businesses impacted by COVID, and I wanted to make sure that was really rolling. And also uh, the fortuitous Pawtucket uh, stadium deal to make sure that I could make as much of a constructive contribution as possible. And, I, and I'll say, Governor McKee said this on the record, he specifically asked that I stay a little bit longer, and so did some of my board members. So I want to respond, responsibly conclude my job. That fortuitous deal that you're talking about is the Pawtucket Soccer Stadium. Yes. It seems to be a little in flux right now. Um, are you disappointed that that didn't get settled before you left office? Are you worried that it might fall through? Uh, I think that that deal has to be carefully constructed and it has the potential to be a real positive contribution to Pawtucket and to Rhode Island under the right circumstances. So I'm proud of where we left it and the continuing efforts work based upon the framework that we helped to assemble, which includes very significant taxpayer protections. It involves no new state money, just the transfer of money within the authorizations that have already occurred to fill the gap for the stadium. But I have to pause you there because what we've heard now is we're going to shift the state money from the ancillary housing and things into the actual stadium, but then they're just going to ask for more state money next year at the General Assembly. The, the developers said that. So le- the plan would eventually mean more state money, it sounds likely, like. Likely, but not definitely. So the, the thing to know, first of all, if it does have a second phase that includes mixed-use, residential, retail, job-producing, new residences for Pawtucket, that should happen. And if there's a gap to be filled that's a reasonably-sized gap, we should fill it. But we don't know yet. The developer's still working on the fully fleshed-out plans for that second phase, so we don't actually know. If the economy is strong, maybe that project can stand on its own two feet. Probably not. Probably it will, but we don't know the exact sizing of that subsidy. So, so to move on on the taxpayer protections, it also includes some points that I helped to negotiate, like the payments to the developer for the stadium will only occur after the project is built and has its certificate of occupancy. That's important so that we don't have, let's say, another funding of a pre-revenue, mm-hmm. not fully baked, not fully funded project. Studios. That we, we have a legacy of that. We must have those taxpayer protections. And what Rhode Islanders should know is whenever I negotiate a deal, the way I will conduct it is I will include taxpayer protections. They know that I will fight hard for them. But clearly you, it, sound, it seemed to me, if between what I was hearing, whispers at the State House and watching how things played out, you and the Commerce Board 
had some real reservations about the ask. And frankly, because you didn't conclude a deal while you were there, it sounds like you left still not convinced that everybody was on the same page on something you think is, is enough in terms of taxpayer protections on this project. Uh, I wouldn't put it that way. Actually, I think that's it is true that it isn't passed through the Commerce Board. Factually true, Ted, and you're right. I think the Commerce Board is, to its credit, doing due diligence, and I wouldn't have them do it any other way. We wanted to present them with a framework and ask for their permission to keep baking it, to keep fleshing it out. And I think at, at least many of the provisions I just described to you, and there, there are more, are things they view favorably. The board should speak for itself, and it's not a monolith. But they ask for more information. Show us the financial modeling. They should ask that question. We were just asking for authorization to keep going. And they want to understand more about that phase two. We all want to know that even though we're not certain of the market conditions that will occur when, when the developer's ready for phase two years down the line, what, are their, what does their modeling show now so that, that we can look at it and kick the tires on it? The last time the developer had done that was about a year ago. Everyone's been busy. But the board is focused on the right issues. I want to ask you about another development deal you negotiated that did get over the finish line, yes. which was the Superman building. Yes. Um, you touted that 20% of the apartments in the building are going to be affordable, but yes. many of those are going to be at um, what is called 120% of AMI, so not exactly low income, but more middle income workforce housing, as we called it. And I looked up the, the income level. That's $81,240 for a single person in Providence. 30% of their gross income would be the rent. So that's $2,000 for a one bedroom apartment. And yeah. that's the affordable apartment in the yeah. Superman building, not the market rate. Right. Is it $2,000 really an affordable rent for well, a person you, in Providence? You, you're making assumptions uh, uh, using using your math, which I don't, uh, I, I don't uh, question, but I think that the developer has to actually set those rates. But what I'll say is those workforce housing units are for police officers, firefighters, nurses, that's the, those are the typical salary levels that you look at at about 120% of AMI. These are working people who can't find housing in Providence right now because the market is so strong it's pricing them out. So the rents will be set in that zone to let working people get the units. And then there are units also for even lower income individuals, which is so essential. Look, when the developer proposed in the early negotiations, they knew we wanted affordable housing in there. When they proposed their version, it was 10% affordable or workforce. We got, and they, they were in that 100 to 120% zone only. We negotiated for 80% and up, meaning for lower income units, and doubled the percent. We also negotiated for it to be a green building. It's gonna be LEED certified, so it'll be a sustainable building. We negotiated that if the building succeeds dramatically, we'll share in the upside. The state will actually see money back out of cash flow and if the building ever sells. And there are other taxpayer protections in there. We also negotiated that the equity, the private contribution from the developer is up 2.4 times, more than doubled the amount of equity he initially wanted to put in. He wanted $13 million in. We got it up to $13 million, up to $32 million that's gonna be contributed by the developer. We negotiate hard for the taxpayer and we bring public benefits like affordable housing and a green building. I want to pivot to the job you're looking for now. I do just 30 seconds on the Superman building. Sure. Knowing 
what's going on with the supply chain, how expensive it's getting to do these projects, yes. how that is a tight budget, I would say, that you wound up negotiating. How likely do you think it is, really, that this gets all the way across, not just votes at all these boards for money, but gets starts construction, gets done? Well, look, I will never negotiate, uh, negotiate against myself or against my successors uh, in saying, well, they may need more money. I'm just not going to say that because, to be honest with you, they cut a deal with us and they knew that there were volatile market conditions. So uh, what I would say is this, um, I think we constructed a very fair deal. The developer updated his cost estimates very, uh, very close to when we concluded the deal. So it wasn't like it was three years old as to the estimates. So my, my hope is that it will stay in shape and I recommend to the public parties that they hold the line as best they can uh, and as construction estimates go in. The other thing to, to note is Briefly. that inflation may dip. So there may be actually be cost decreases in the bidding process depending upon when it goes out. All right, let's talk about the Treasurer's Office and let's talk about the same thing we're talking about, inflation. The financial conditions are changing so yes. rapidly in the country and that makes people worried about the pension fund. How do you feel as someone who wants to be Treasurer about the current investment strategy that Treasurer Magaziner has in place? I think uh, Treasurer Magaziner's back to basics approach, that's what he calls it, is, is quite sound. I'm going to be, it won't surprise you, uh, really intensive about analyzing every aspect of the portfolio. Why did we choose certain assets? What, what were, what's the precedence that led to the establishment? What were the contracts or the RFPs or the competitive processes? I wanna make sure we're choosing the optimal mix. Looking at uh, the future and the volatility in the overall economy and the R word that certain economists are currently using, recession, I would wanna make sure that the counter cyclical assets there are counterbalancing assets that you place in a portfolio precisely for a downturn. I wanna make sure they're strong enough. And I wanna make sure that every aspect of that portfolio works in a good economy and a bad economy. The Providence pension will not be under your purview um, as state treasurer, but obviously is extremely important to the, the health of the state. Um, did you vote for the pension bond in Providence in the special election earlier this month? Yes, I did. Uh, the bond has been approved, the governor signed the bill into law, but we don't know if the city is going to be able to actually borrow that $515 million because right. of rising interest rates. Do yes. you think the moment has passed for that opportunity for Providence? And if so, as treasurer, what would you recommend to the city to solve its pension problem? I, I think we all have to be honest, that moment may have passed. They need to monitor federal interest rates in, uh, with intensity and they need to determine whether it's feasible. Um, I wouldn't recommend that they go all the way up to their cap. I, I would recommend that they look very carefully at the decision. Now, having said that, I think it's good that they have the option. And we all know that there were not a lot of options on the t table that were politically feasible. Uh, the main thing I'll say about this is for municipal pension funds, plural, I will establish dedicated staff within the treasurer's office to offer advisory services who will, in response to questions, or even proactively if we're seeing problems, help advise systems on how to create more stability and more growth. Doesn't mean we're gonna adopt every pension system that is floundering or having coverage problems, but it means that we will have a more interactive and collaborative role with towns. Do you have a recommendation for Providence if they can't borrow the money? I think we have to look at every detail. Until you know everything about the market conditions for the issuance of this bond, you don't know anything.
So I would want to get so inside of it before offering recommendations. Believe it or not, we are, we are out of time, but I have one quick political question uh, before we go to break, which is, are you supporting Governor McKee for re-election? I'm not supporting any other statewide candidates right now because I'm just focused on getting my own, my own candidacy up and running. But I look forward to working with all of the office holders once they're elected. One of the things I want to do is create really a more neutral office in the government to help small businesses and to help all businesses and to help households that are struggling. The treasurer's office will be an engine for the economy and we're gonna work with everyone to make that happen. All right, Democratic candidate for general treasurer, Stefan Pryor, thanks for joining us. Thank and you, don't Jim go away though, because when we come back, we're gonna bring on Ed Fitzpatrick from the Boston Globe to break down what is just a huge week in the news nationally and locally. So don't go away, this is Newsmakers. Welcome back to Newsmakers. I'm Ted Nisi filling in for Tim White, who is on vacation, well-deserved, alongside Target 12 investigative reporter Steph Machado. And we welcome back an old friend of Newsmakers. It's great to have him, uh, Ed Fitzpatrick, Boston Globe political reporter here in Rhode Island for a look at the week's political news. Ed, good to see you. Good to see you guys. Just as we were going on the air, uh, guys, we the news came down. We're taping this on Friday morning that... As expected, the Supreme Court has overturned the Roe versus Wade abortion decision. At this point, it was widely expected, but there was some, maybe the justices would tweak it and everything. Um, Ed, ask you first, just your immediate thought on what this means now that we know it's happening for politics, you know, locally in the coming months. Yeah, I, I was thinking about what would have happened if that decision came down yesterday when the General Assembly, or even a few hours ago when the General Assembly was still in session early this morning, and uh, would there have been a stronger push for uh, Medicaid coverage and state insurance coverage for abortions? There, there, were, there was an effort to get that passed this year. It didn't succeed. I think we already saw this in the right as we were walking into the studio that this is going to potentially affect the governor's race. Um, fodder for candidates like Nellie Gorbea and Helena Folks to attack Governor McKee for not putting that um, Medicaid coverage for abortions into his budget, not proposing a, a budget amendment. Um, this was something that when the leaked draft of the Roe decision came out, got a ton of momentum for amending Rhode Island's law to provide, this would be taxpayer-funded taxpayer abortions for both state employees who are on um, the state's insurance and then also uh, people on Medicaid. So a large number- Which is a third, we should yeah. say, of Rhode Islanders, not all women, of course, but a, a, a huge right. number of people. It's a huge number of people that, that can't get that coverage right now in their insurance. Um, and it didn't pass. The session is over um, and it didn't make it and there will be finger pointing in the coming days, I'm sure, about whose fault it is that that didn't happen. But with this decision coming down today, it's definitely noteworthy. I it also have to think this is going to affect, it's a federal issue. I mean, yes, it's going to the states, but the Supreme Court is a federal issue. And we've already seen Seth Magaziner, who's the leading <clears throat> candidate in the 2nd District to replace Jim Landry, trying to make hay out of it because it's more uncomfortable terrain for Alan Fung, the leading Republican, in a bad year for Democrats where they're looking for anything that might bring back wavering Democrats. And I know a lot of them think that could be something that matters there. Let's let's talk about the governor's race. Um, pivot to that because you, you alluded to it there, Steph. This was this was a, one of the more interesting weeks we've had so far in the yeah. race for governor, the Democratic primary in Rhode Island. Uh, you know, it's been pretty sedate a lot of the time, surprisingly to me. But we had the gloves come off, the, the Nelly tax, we were uh, told by Helena Folks. Nelly saying it just shows her big CEO opponent uh, is shilling. What, what's going on with that? Yeah, I mean, they did not wait for the 4th of July for the fireworks. We got we, we got uh, the campaign rolling here. Uh, the thing that did it was Nellie Gorbea's ad, uh, and where she kind of introduced herself, but then promptly proposed an increase in the corporate tax. 
drew immediate fire from Governor McKee, from Helena folks, not so much from the more progressive candidates for governor, and and uh, it, that really launches the campaign now. And of course, they in the, uh, the folks campaign quick to say this would be attacks on Dells, on Greggs, on Cello, oh, big blue bug, yes. big blue bug, all <laughs> you know because of yeah. their, their tax status. Um, Steph, it's interesting because it, we are getting very close. Yep. It's surprising it's taken this long for us to feel like things are getting interesting. Yeah, no, absolutely. We we've talked about it being a little bit polite. I moderated the first gubernatorial forum. And and I, it was notable that there weren't they weren't sniping at each other, really attacking each other much at all. I think we're going to see that changing as the summer drags on here. And let me stick with you, Steph, because the race you cover most closely is the Providence mayor race, is our Providence City Hall reporter. That one still feels sedate to me. I mean, you know, this the City Hall is a big prize, and yet, you know, I have I don't think I have even seen fireworks, use your word, Ed, as much as we saw in the governor's race this week in the race for mayor. Usually Providence, it's, it's like a wrestling match. I would say the gloves have not come off yet <laughs> yeah. in the Providence race. They're, the <clears throat> candidates are being very polite. They're holding a number of forums. Um, I where believe they, Dan McGowan, your colleague, has called them boring. boring. Reciting their, you know, <laughs> their positions on a variety of topics. But they, the three of them. Remind us who's running. Yeah, I should say the three Democrats, Brett Smiley, Nierva LaFortune, and Gonzalo Cuervo, agree on, frankly, a lot of topics. Um, and so they will eventually need to start differentiating themselves from each other a little bit more. And yes, they vary a little bit on this progressive scale. Um, but they're all Democrats. They've all they all have experience in city government um, and a couple of them in state government. And so they will need to start differentiating themselves from each other. And at Providence at, the, at this moment does not have a Republican or an independent mm -hmm. in the race. So the race is in September for for mm -hmm. mayor. And so we're only three months away and we'll have to see if things get a little bit more exciting. And it's such an important position. Mm -hmm. who, who's the mayor of Providence yep. in a state this small? And you're right. It's been sedate. It's it's been kind of wonky. And uh, so uh, we'll see how long that lasts. You also so it's Providence politics. I expect better. And you know, I, I, it's, it's <laughs> aggressive. Yeah, we don't expect better, but we expect aggressive. <laughs> aggressive. It's, it's, it's interesting to me in both that race, also the second congressional district primary. We mentioned Seth Magaziner had a wide lead in our poll, but there are six candidates um, running against him. In both cases, you know, if you look right now, the conventional wisdom is that Brett Smiley has an edge in Providence. I don't see the other two being as aggressive as you'd expect to try to dislodge him on that. And in the second district, the other five Democrats not really doing big moves that I've seen to try to dislodge Seth Magaziner from kind of the poll position he's in. And I, I do want to bring up a story my colleague Eli Sherman and I broke this week where uh, we checked in in Washington, D.C. about the tax status of Sarah Morgenthau, who we had on recently on the show, who of course has been dogged by these questions, are you really from Rhode Island because she's running from her summer home? And sure enough, they said she's still claiming a homestead tax exemption in mm -hmm. Washington and isn't claiming it at her family's home in North Kingstown. Her campaign says, oh, you know, we're going to we're changing that. She'll be getting the homestead exemption going forward. But Ed, you're a lifelong Rhode Islander. You've covered Rhode Island politics for a long time. We, we tend to think of Rhode Island voters as a bit provincial. How much do you think this kind of thing matters? I, I do think it matters. I mean, to me, if you've never been to Benny's, you're not a real Rhode Islander. <laughs> um, you know, have gone to the Benny's in Greenville growing up. But, <clears throat> you know, professor uh, at Providence College, Adam Myers, says that's changing. A lot of people are moving into the state from from elsewhere and we're not by 
academic measures, one of the more parochial states anymore. And we've seen this in the mayor's race too, because the two of the candidates, um, Cuervo and LaFortune, grew up in Providence, but Brett Smiley didn't, and he tries to pitch it as, well, I picked Providence. Right, yes. I'm not from here, but I picked here. And so that could be a compelling argument um, in the statewide races at all. Well, I chose to come to yeah, Rhode Island. I, the question is the who timing. came from out of state chuckled when they heard Brett saying that. They were like, hasn't he lived here like 15 years? Yeah, I was it's like, been a while. This is Rhode Island. He knows he's still it's, a newcomer. Right, exactly. Um, big news <laughs> politically last night in the in the Republican Party. Um, to all of our surprise, about 10.45 p.m. at the end of the House session, House Republican leader Blake Filippi announced he is not seeking another term. Less than a year ago, many of us thought he would be their, their nominee for governor. I mean, the, the rep sounded shocked. Were you, Steph? Yeah, I was really surprised. I texted you when I <laughs> saw your tweet and, and just said, what? <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, he decided not to run for governor, saying it was because he was going to seek another term in the House, uh, but changed his mind and was getting this. It says something about Filippi that he was getting praise from both sides of the aisle Across on the, the House spectrum, floor yeah. last night um, as the Republican leader. You know, he's always been someone who uh, stands up and challenges bills on the floor mm-hmm. um, and, and says, can you tell me in line page two, <laughs> right. line seven, yeah. does that mean this? And um, I forgive me, I forget which representative said last night that he sort of raised the a Rep Kazarian. Rep said Kazarian this, yes. said it sort of like raised the raised the level on that. Yeah, House she said she had to be ready to defend her yep, bills yep. even more. Ed, you and I have covered the Republican Party in Rhode a long time. You know, you I came up at the end of their dominance of the governor's office. It's been a very rough stretch for Republicans since the 2006 cycle when Kachuri won re-election. Blake's seen as an up-and-comer, Blake Filippi. Now he's gonna be out of the state house. I mean, what do you make of that for the Republicans in Rhode Island? Yeah, I mean, he, I think a lot of people thought he would run, and, and but he didn't seem interested in that in that position. And I don't see him running for uh, a governor now as an independent or anything like that, so, like people were conjecturing. But, um, you know, Michael Chippendale is going to step in as, as the House Minority Leader. He's been close to Filippi. He's been the whip over the years. I, I think he'll, he'll also be an articulate spokesman for the party positions on the floor. All right. Well, it doesn't seem like we will lack for news in the coming months. Uh, the bunch of us, we didn't even get to the uh, other part of the second congressional district race, Alan Fung versus Seth Magaziner, that we're all keeping an eye on. And, of course, the big row decision coming down, and we'll see how that reshapes everything. So um, we're going to have full coverage of not only all these races, but the row decision you'll find it on WPRI.com. That's where you'll find Pulse of Providence. And of course, you can read Ed Fitzpatrick's reporting at Boston Globe RI. Can you like do a slash RI or something on <laughs> Boston Globe? You'll find it there. BostonGlobe.com. There's a big Rhode Island at the top. Uh, thanks for joining us. Tim White will be back next week, and we will see you then on Newsmakers.